I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the second year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I have with us Dr. Elliot Cohen, our Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy. Elliot, so good to have you back, even under such dire circumstances we're talking in the world right now. How do you view the challenges going forward for the Ukrainians? And, you know, this is a time where we're all taking stock here in America, but they're fighting day to day, minute to minute. How do you see what's happening right now? Well, uh, th- thanks for that welcome. It's always good to be uh, be with you. I think the first thing we have to realize is that for the Ukrainians, this is an existential war. So they approach it very differently than we did, say, the Afghan or the Iraq wars, or indeed any war since World War II, and maybe not even that. So, you know, they're clearly tired, they're clearly grieving, and they've uh, suffered a lot, but their outlook is very different. I think the the psychological challenge that they have now is that it looks as though this war will go on for at least another year, perhaps longer. They're deeply concerned about American support, whether Congress will come through, which is a, a critical thing, and whether, you know, fundamentally the backing will be there for them to really be able to defeat Russia. But I don't think there's any question but that there is a commitment to to winning the war and to defeating Russia. De- defining that as really expelling Russia from territory that's Ukrainian, has been Ukrainian since 1991. And the reason for that is that uh, the, the conviction is pretty much universal, that if they don't do that, they'll just be setting themselves up for another war. So they're, you know, they're quite resolute in my experience. And you mentioned the United States Congress, which is a key component of this war. Right now, I, I suppose aid is not certain at all. It's, it's in fact, it's uncertain. Um, how do you see the equation here in the United States? You know, where is the Congress on this? It is uncertain at the moment. I mean, the the thing that's bizarre about this is it's because of minority of the Republican caucus, and particularly the you know extreme right, which is utterly opposed to all aid for Ukraine. I don't. I think nobody would disagree that if a bill went to Congress to provide the tens of billions of dollars of military aid to Ukraine, most of which, by the way, is spent in the United States. Let's remember that. That would probably get something like a two thirds majority. And so it's being blocked by a small number of kind of willful, stubborn isolationists who, in some cases, actually sympathize with the Russians in a perverse way and not not with the Ukrainians. Now, they, you know, I think a lot of people that I knew who who know more about than I were, I do, were, were quite pessimistic for a while about that happening. I think in recent days, there's more of a sense that somehow this will be pushed through. I mean, the challenges for uh, the speaker, Mike Johnson, he is facing a, a threat to vacate the chair, which is, you know, basically the, the a single member of the Republican caucus said we have to have a vote on firing him. And if he loses three or four votes, then he would be out as speaker unless he was relying on Democratic support. And there are a couple of ways around that, but they're not they're not simple. And I think that's probably what he's wrestling with now. But it's you know, you, you cannot overstate just how important it is for Congress to come through with this aid and the the consequences, not just for Ukraine, but for European security and above all for American standing in the world would be 
immense. And so this is a this is a real watershed moment. So what happens if the United States doesn't come through for Ukraine? Like, you know, some of the consequences are, are just catastrophic, aren't they? Well, the, the consequences are already being felt. You know, the, the Ukrainians lost Evdivka. They've had to pull back a couple of kilometers here and there in other places. And that's because they're wildly short of basic munitions. That includes particularly 105, 155 millimeter shells, but also it's uh, air defense munitions. And one of the things that's worrying is if you look at the daily statistics for how many drones and missiles the Russians fire and how many get through as opposed to being shot down, the percentage has gone up. And that's, a again, a direct reflection of lack of American support. And then, you know, there's a lot of other stuff that the Ukrainians need if if they're simply going to be able to to hold on and they're going to need even more if they have hopes of carrying out a an offensive. Now, the good news, kind of very thin silver lining in all this is the Europeans, I think, have at last woken up to the possibility, which troubles me greatly, but it's a real possibility that the Americans simply won't be there to provide the aid that they have. And so they're now talking about doing more dramatic things to include importing munitions from overseas that the Czechs have offered to arrange if they can get the funding. Um, I think there has been, uh, there's no question, there's been you know, construction of factories and expanded production in a lot of countries, including some like Finland that don't talk about it that much. So, you know, that will all be there, but it's not going to make up for the United States. Not in the short run, it won't. With all this isolationism that we're seeing in the Congress, doesn't it occur to some of these folks that by doing that, the United States is really abdicating world leadership to the Europeans, to others, to even to the Chinese? I, I think they don't care. Uh, f first, I think some of these people are really n know very little about the world and care even less. Uh, you know, politicians normally are inwardly focused, as they should be. But I think this is a group that is particularly narrow. They haven't traveled that much overseas. They've never thought about foreign affairs. Some of them, like Rand Paul, are kind of in the grip of an ideology uh, which is, you know, libertarian and isolationist. And there are, you know, there are rival think tanks in this city that push this line. So that's what's going on. But I think it's also part of the drama of what's unfolding in the Republican Party. And, you know, the domination of that party by Donald Trump, who has been extremely sympathetic to Vladimir Putin, uh, extremely unsympathetic to the Ukrainians. And there's a desire to please him and to respond to his every whim. And I think the signals coming out from Mar-a-Lago is he doesn't particularly want to see a lot of aid going to Ukraine. And so people are reacting to that or in some cases anticipating what they think he will think. And the result is something that's damaging not just to the Ukrainians, but to America's standing in the world. Indeed. President Zelensky of Ukraine announced uh, just a couple of days ago that the death toll among Ukrainian soldiers is up to 31,000, I believe. That's a staggering number. It's probably too low. You know, the overall assessment seems to be that the Russians have taken about 400,000 killed or badly wounded enough to take them off the field or captured. It's, I think, a lot of people doubt that that 31,000 number. They think it's probably higher, possibly considerably higher, but you know, as much as two or three times.
Because the Russian number, as you just said, between deaths and just casualties, meaning taken off the battlefields, closer to 400,000. That is a staggering number. Oh, that's a, it's an enormous number. So, you know, that I don't know whether he's counting civilian deaths as well as uh, military deaths. And, you know, there, there are people who are missing, there are people who are captured. You know, you'd really need to go in there and figure out how the statistics are. But I would view that as a floor, not as a ceiling for what the actual casualties are. This is a, you know, it bears repeating. This is a real war. It's a, a war of a kind that we simply haven't experienced in a very, very long time. And we find it difficult to wrap our heads around this. Absolutely. I want to talk about some of the recent loss of, of Divka, as you mentioned a minute ago, uh, to Russia in a dwindling number of supplies and manpower. Can Ukraine really continue to hold on to the front line? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think they can. They, you know, the loss of Evdivka was a psychological uh, blow to some extent, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't even exaggerate that. And they, the Russians paid a horrific cost. You know, one estimate was 17,000 dead. I mean, the, the Russians have just shown no regard for the lives of their own soldiers, unlike the Ukrainians who, who do. I mean, the Russian strategy seems to be you just put more and more soldiers on the front line, they get killed, and eventually, you outlast the Ukrainians, right? I think that's it. What's less clear is whether the Russians can then kind of exploit any of these successes with a large scale, you know, breakthrough or something like that. And the thing is, they've suffered such losses, including in leadership, that it seems unlikely that they would be able to really do that. You know, I think what the Ukrainians will do is they'll classic sort of defense. They'll trade space for time and they'll do their best to bleed the Russians. Now, you know, if you were to say, well, then what what hope do they have? Well, I'd say they have there are a number of hopes. One is let's remember that uh, there are actually several campaigns going on. There's a land campaign across something like 900 kilometers of territory, which is a very long front. So there's, you know, there's fighting going on all along it and it goes in different directions in different places. But there's also a maritime campaign. And there the Ukrainians have been very successful in destroying a large part of the Black Sea fleet, but more importantly, denying the Russians to operate near the Ukrainian coast. And that means the Ukrainians can continue to export grain and they don't have to worry about amphibious landings near Odessa. There is a strategic strike campaign. And uh, on the one hand, the Russians are doing their best to go after not just infrastructure, but civilian targets. I mean, they they will perfectly happy to go after apartment blocks and hospitals. But But the truth of the matter is they haven't really been able to break Ukrainian will. And the Ukrainians have been able to hit inside Russia, and they have been able to hit militarily valuable targets, not at the same scale. But what they have what they have done is it forces the Russians to disperse some very scarce resources, and the Ukrainians do occasionally achieve a, you know some quite amazing things. So they just shot down one of like maybe a dozen airborne command and control aircraft that the Russians have. This is the second one that they've downed. You know that's that's quite astounding. So you have these these other campaigns going. How the Ukrainians can win, I think, is if there's a dramatic change in first some of the weaponry that we provide them. So that would include things like the German Taurus missile with which they could take out the Kerch Bridge. The scale in which they use drones, I think there probably needs to be like an order of magnitude change, and they can handle that. I mean, they have the you know competent people, and there's the software. It's just a question of ginning up production. So you can be chewing up 
Russian forces before they attack you. And then I think the third thing is it's not just a question of providing you know, much more equipment, some of these M1 tanks, for example, that we have in storage. And by the way, we have lots of stuff in storage that we could be giving them. But but I think the higher level unit training that they need, you know, they, they're putting people in the field with four weeks of training. Well, you know, basic training in a modern Western military is somewhere between 12 and 22 weeks. And so it's that's not nearly enough. And then you need high level unit training and, uh, you know, training of staffs. And I think that's one of the areas in which the West has really fallen down. You know, we have not been providing that. One of the things that I would really like to see is us be being willing to have a military advisory mission in Ukraine. You know, we have a few, very few officers on the ground, basically in the attaché's office. There are probably some special forces running around. The CIA is there. But, but that's not the same thing as having a large military advisory mission that's there not to fight, but to advise and to train and, and to form connections with the Ukrainian officers who are the ones who are really going to go fight this war. What do you think stopping us from doing that now? Well, the same thing that stopped us all along, timidity. Could be fear of taking casualties, but you know, soldiers accept that risk. I mean, you would have no short. If, I am convinced if you, if you ask for volunteers to go do this, you know, you, you'd be picking for each slot, you'd be picking from 100 people. No doubt in my mind about it. I think there's also this lingering uh, fear, which you and I have discussed a number of times, a fear of escalation and something the Russians play on. And the result, it, it, is, uh, it has been there all along over the last two years. It has caused us to do too little, too late, consistently. And I am very much afraid that it hasn't gone away. You know, we we have lots and lots of surplus ATACMs, long-range missiles. We're reluctant to give them to the Ukrainians because we're afraid it'll make the Russians mad. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's bizarre. You know, we think it's a bad thing if an American weapon falls on Russian territory, even while the Russians are slaughtering Ukrainian civilians in their cities. You know, this is madness. And there's nothing the Russians can do. You know, we've learned over and over their threats. And so it's bluster. It, it's always been bluster. And we keep on falling for it. And I, I have to say, I am baffled by it. I'm baffled by it, too. I mean, we're the United States. What do we care if one of our weapons falls on Russian soil? What are they going to do? Right. Well, and look, they've had no problem with Russian weapons killing American servicemen no. and women. None. So, so it, it, it is not something that makes any sense. So do you, let me just ask you straight out. Do you think that this is a stalemate going into this next year? Or do you think anything's going to change? No, I, I, you know, I think the word stalemate is actually a, it's a really misleading word. It's, it, it's speaking as a military historian, it's misleading even when you talk about World War I. It's a positional war. And that is to say a war where there's not a whole lot of movement. But that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of important stuff going on, a lot of technological innovation, tactical innovation, training. And, and what happened in World War I is both sides innovated. Uh, you really saw that take effect in 1918. And then you had a series of campaigns. And the critical thing is that you begin to have first one side, then the other begin to collapse. And I think if eventually that will happen, 
in this case. We want the Russians to be the ones to collapse. And I think I, I continue to think that's eminently possible if we act on the right scale and with the right sense of urgency. Elliot, I think the key question is, what happens if Ukraine doesn't win this war? Uh, well, it is a monumental disaster. If they don't win the war, uh, first, it's a disaster for Ukraine, uh, which will have suffered terribly, will have lost a lot of civilians, tens of thousands of kids kidnapped. I mean, just and and God forbid that they come again under Russian rule, because the Russians really fundamentally don't accept Ukraine as an independent nation. So, you know, we've seen what the Russians are capable of. We've seen the rape. We've seen the murder. We've seen the torture. Um, so that will be will sentence the Ukrainians to that. But I think it'll have a larger effect on on Europe. And I don't think the the result is necessarily going to be that the Europeans arm to defend themselves, because this will be seen and it should be seen as a failure of American foreign policy and a failure of American commitments explicitly made to the Ukrainian people and to the Ukrainian government. And I think there'd be two directions in which I could imagine Europe going, none of them good. So one is that they simply begin to accommodate the Russians again. They've been there before. There are, you know, the Ru Russians have very active disinformation programs. They have their agents. So there'll be a lot of pressure on that one. But the alternative is also not such a good one, which is that if you're a Finn or a Pole or a Turk or Kazakh, uh, you'll say, you know what? We can't count on the Americans. The Russians are willing to just invest an enormous amount of effort to dominate us no matter what. Let's get lots of nuclear weapons. And the result would be a, you know explosion of nuclear proliferation, which itself would be a catastrophe because it would, at first, I think it just raises the, the possibility of preventive wars launched by the Russians or the actual use of nuclear weapons. Uh, which is something we've managed to avoid, but it would also have effects in the rest of the world. And that's uh, if if the Europeans are all nuclear armed, I bet you the Taiwanese and the Japanese and the South Koreans are become nuclear armed. That destabilizes that part of the world. One other thing I, sh I should add is, you know, I've been traveling in both Europe and Asia the last year, and it is really striking to me that the the Taiwanese, the Japanese, they are paying a lot of attention to what's going on there. And the credibility of our commitments in the Indo-Pacific are directly linked to the success or failure of Ukraine. And, you know, people in Congress who are voting on these things need to be aware of that. Elliot, a lot to think about as always. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing some of your thoughts. Thank you so much. Happy to do it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 